is not modern day thinking. But it is right thinking. Uh, that, that is not what the world, that, that is even not what Christendom would have you to believe. But that is what God says in his word. Take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter number 7. Romans chapter number 7. And we'll look at verse number 11 through verse number 13. Verse number 11 down through verse number 13. The Bible says in verse number 11, For sin taking occasion... By the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Verse number 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? Once again, Paul answers as he's answered several questions down through this passage of Scripture. God forbid. There's probably not a more definitive no than can be said than when he said God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin... It's important that we understand the wording that Paul's using here. He said, but sin, that it might appear sin. Working death in me by that which is good. And then what I want to key in on this evening is this. That last phrase. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for these verses. Lord, I pray as we look into these, may we key in on the thought, Lord, that seems to be prevailing through this passage of Scripture. Lord, may we see it Lord, in a practical way this evening. May we see it in a way that will help us to help others to see it. And Lord, may we focus on what needs to be focused upon in our lives so that others may see you and you may be made evident. Lord, we pray and ask you that you would do what only you can do And open our hearts to the preaching of the Word of God this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. I want to approach this section of Scripture from a little different perspective than what we've been approaching. As we've been going down through the book of Romans thus far, we've taken those verses and just walked down verse by verse. But there is something key in these three verses 
that I think that we need to spend some time on and draw, if you will, a practical application from that will help us not only in our lives, but will help us as we minister to those around us. It will help us as we try to reach the lost for the cause of Christ. And I want to look at those things, I want to key in on those things this evening, the Lord being our helper. By the time that we're finished with the message this evening, hopefully the thought that I have in mind will be clarified so that you and I can get clarity from this passage of Scripture. Paul makes this statement, and that that statement at the latter end of verse number 13 just jumps out if you will. It jumps out from Scripture. He makes the statement, all that he has said from verse number 11, verse number 12, and the beginning of verse number 13, culminates in what he says here in this last phrase of verse number 13. That sin, and here's what we've got to understand, by the commandment. That sin, by the commandment, might become exceeding sinful. A person is not going to see their need for Christ until they see who they are before Christ. They're not going to... We've made the statement, and we've made it multiple times in our past, uh, in, our, in dealing with people, that people are not going to get saved till they get lost. Well, they're not going to get lost until we help them see that they're lost the way God says to help them see that they're lost. I want us to consider that last phrase as we look down through here and keeping this thought in mind throughout the message, I want to try to draw a proper conclusion by the end of the message that will help us and aid us in working with those people around us and trying to be a witness for the cause of Christ. A majority of what I'm going to give you tonight is not original. I didn't develop it, I didn't come up with it, and I couldn't come up with it as well as the guy that I looked at, followed and, and looked into. I couldn't have come up with it quite as well as he could have come up with it. So I'm, I'm going to tell you this evening what I'm going to give you is not original. But it's truth. And it's powerful. It's something that we can use. And I hope and pray that we'll, uh, we'll put it to action in our lives. With that being said, let's get started with this thought in mind. I want to take that thought and expound upon that thought. And as we do this, I want us to consider something. I want us to consider what modern evangelism is in our day. Modern evangelism and the methods of modern evangelism in our day creates, and, and these statistics astounded me when I, when I saw them, modern evangelism, as far as we know it today, creates 80 to 90% of falling from faith versus continuing in faith. There is 80 to 90 out of every 100 that make, and and please stay with me, 
80 to 90 out of every 100 that make a decision for Christ fall away from that faith. Now I want you to understand, I'm not talking about true converts. I'm talking about those in modern evangelism that make a decision to follow Christ. 80 to 90% of those are going to fall away. They're going, to go up, they're going to go by the wayside. And we're going to see as we go down through this, we're going to understand how that this comes to happen and how this takes place. Uh, when I began to look at this and began to consider this, there were some statistics that were brought up around the period of 1991. The year of 1991, there was a major denomination in the United States that in 1991 they claimed to have had 294,000 decisions for Christ. 294,000 decisions for Christ. That was a group of 11,500 churches that made up that denomination. And they said that there was a record, they had had on record that they were keeping of people that had made a decision for Christ. There were over 294,000 that said they made a decision for Christ. At the end of 1991, they could only find 14,000 of those 294,000 in fellowship in local churches. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a 96% falling away. And there is a reason for that, and we're going to get into that as we look at this. Unfortunately, like I said, they couldn't find but, but 14,000 that were still in fellowship. That meant there, there were 280,000 that made decisions for Christ that went back to the old lifestyle. They went back to doing what they were doing. There is a reason for that. If we study the book of Romans intently, as we are doing so even tonight and have done up until this point, specifically the gospel proclamation of men like Spurgeon and Wesley and Moody and Whitfield and Luther and others that God has used down through the ages, we will find that they used a very different principle than we are using in the day that you and I are living in. They are, uh, in light of that, I want us to consider, that I want us to make good news make sense. You and I have good news. You and I are in Christ. We have good news, but I want us to make that good news make sense. And in doing so, I want to illustrate things this way this evening. I want us to consider, if you will, what the Bible says is perfect and actually converts the soul. In Psalm 19 and verse number 7, the Bible said, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. What did God say is perfect? His law. What converts the soul? The law. What did Paul say? I had not known sin until I knew the law. So understand this evening, there is a way that God has 
taught from Scripture that we are to reach out in evangelism and reach people. And that is by the law that God has given in His Word. As we consider this, I want us to uh, consider the function of God's law for just a moment by maybe considering this, if you will. Considering the civil law of God. Consider it this way. Imagine if I were to say to you, if I were to come up to you tonight, or this evening, I were to come up to you and say, I've got good news. You were to look at me and say, what is that good news? I would say that someone just paid a $25,000 speeding fine on your behalf. Someone just paid a $25,000 speeding fine on your behalf. You would look at me and you would say, probably, I don't have a $25,000 speeding fine. I don't have that fine. How is that? How in the world is that good news to me? Because I don't have a fine. I, ha- I haven't. I haven't broken the law. I haven't been speeding to where it cost me twenty five thousand dollars. My good news would not be good news to you. It would not seem. In fact, to be honest with you, according to Scripture, my good news would seem foolish to you. Why? Because you do not know there's a problem. You haven't been presented with the problem, so therefore the solution that I have is going to be offensive and sometimes insulting to you because I'm telling you that you have a $25,000 fine that you don't know anything about. You don't know that you have the fine. However, if I was to say it this way, It may make more sense if I were to word it this way to you. On the way to the meeting tonight, the law clocked you at 55 miles per hour through an area that is set aside for a blind children's convention. There were 10 clear warning signs before you got there, but yet you continued to drive through that area at 55 miles per hour. The judge put down his gavel and charged you with a fine of $25,000 because of your speeding through an area for a blind children's convention center. And then I tell you, I have good news. Somebody paid your $25,000 fine because of the law that you broke going through that convention center area. It would make a whole lot more sense to you. That that good news of somebody paying your fine and paying that on your behalf would make a lot more sense to you at that time. The law was about to take course when someone stepped up, and when they stepped up and made that pavement for you, it would make a lot more sense to you. If I don't clearly bring instruction and understanding that you have violated the law, then that good news does nothing for you. However, now in the same way I want to approach an impenitent sinner, I want to tell them that 
Christ died for their sin, died on the cross for their sins, it will seem, the Bible says, foolishness to them. If all I do is, is approach someone and I tell them, Jesus Christ died for your sins, they're going to look around and say, I'm not really that bad. I haven't really done that much wrong. I'm not as bad as another person is. I, I, haven't, I haven't broken this. I haven't done that. At that point, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse number 18, the preaching of the cross becomes foolishness to them. So you, you kind of get where we're going with this. How that we're looking at it becomes foolish because it wouldn't make sense. The Bible says that the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. And it will be offensive to them because they are insulted by you saying they're a sinner when they think they're just as good as their neighbor is. But I want to take time to follow the footsteps of Jesus and what Jesus does and it makes a whole lot more sense in the way Jesus does things. If we take time to open the divine law of God, the law that God has given us, the Ten Commandments, and show a sinner precisely what he has done, that he has offended God, that he has violated God's law, then he becomes, as James says, converted of the law as a transgressor. James chapter 2 and verse number 9 says that they are convinced of the law as a transgressor. Why? Because the law has shown them they're a sinner. Then the good news of the fine being paid becomes not foolishness, but it becomes what Romans 1.16 says. It becomes the power of God unto salvation you see to those that perish it's foolishness but to us that believe it is the power of God unto salvation I want you to consider if you will the function of God's law Romans chapter 3 and verse number 19 now we know that whatsoever things the law saith it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world become guilty before God. We've looked at that as we've gone down through this. So understand that one of the functions of God's law, remember what he said in chapter 3 and verse number 19, now, now we know that what things whoever the law says, it says to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. The first thing that the law does as a function is it stops the mouths of the unbelievers. The law of God stops the mouth of the unbelievers. There's plenty of people, they would, people would tell you, there's plenty of people that are worse off than I am. There's plenty of people that are uh, worse than me. They're, I've been good to my neighbor. I've done this, I've done that. No, the law stops the mouth of justification by themselves. They're justifying who they are, saying that when they look around, they're comparing themselves to someone else. 
where the law does not compare us to each other. The law compares us to God. And when the law compares us to God, we realize that we're a sinner. We realize that we're undone without God. So the function of God's law, number one, is that it would stop every mouth. It stops us from justifying ourselves. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 20 said, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is what? The knowledge of sin. The law brings us to the knowledge of sin. God's God's law, and this is what we're what we're looking at in chapter number seven and verse number thirteen, where it says that sin by what? By the commandment. That sin by the commandment. I've lost my place. By sin, that sin by the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. You mention sin to someone that does not go to church, they don't listen to preaching, they've not read their Bibles. You mention sin to them, they think very little about it. Why? Because they're a sinner from birth. They are just doing what is natural for them to do. And in doing so, they don't think much about what God says, but it is the law that brings the knowledge of sin. Romans chapter 7 and verse number 7 says this, and this was covered last week. Romans chapter 7 verse 7 said, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Paul said, I had not known the law except, I had not known sin except by the law. Then Paul also tells us, and we have mentioned this several times through this series of messages, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Here's here's where most of us, and I'm guilty of this myself, most of the time when we quote Galatians chapter 3 and verse number 24, we quote it this way. Wherefore the sin, the law is our schoolmaster bringing us unto salvation. That's the way we quote it. That's not what Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24 says. Wherefore the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. We don't need to, in our quoting the scripture, we don't need to bypass Christ. There is a purpose and a reason that Christ is there. It is Christ that brings us and justifies us by faith. God's law acts as a schoolmaster and brings us to Jesus Christ that we might be justified through the faith in his blood. Here's what we need to understand. We, We must present the law of God. And we must present it, and when we present it in a proper way, we're going to present the law of God in a way that the law does not help us. It leaves us helpless. We've got to present things to a lost and dying world to where God's law brings them to a point to where it leaves them not helped, but helpless. 
Why do we want to do that? Because if we leave them helpless, they will turn to Christ, which is the means of justification by faith. It does not justify us. It just leaves us guilty before the judgment bar of a holy God. The law that we find in the Word of God leaves us guilty before the judgment bar of God. The tragedy of modern day evangelism is that around the turn of the century when it forsook the law and its capacity to convert the soul to drive sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ, modern evangelism had to therefore figure out another reason for sinners to respond to the gospel. And here's what happens in our day. Here's what comes up in our day when people are dealing with a lost sinner. The issue that they chose to attract sinners with was the issue of life enhancement. Life enhancement. The gospel degraded into this phrase. Jesus Christ will give you peace, joy, love, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. That is what most are preaching today. That Jesus Christ will give you peace, He'll give you joy, He'll give you love, He'll give you fulfillment, and He'll give you lasting happiness. The problem is they're leading off with that. I did not say that was an untruth. I said the problem is they're leading off with that. The motive and the result of the law is this. Now let me illustrate it this way. In an unscriptural nature of this very popular teaching, I want us to consider this. I want us to think, if you will, about two men sitting on an airplane. They're on a trip. These two men are sitting on an airplane. Someone comes up to the first man, and he hands the first man a parachute. And he tells him to put the parachute on, and if he puts that parachute on, it will improve his flight. If he puts that parachute on, it will improve his flight. He's a little skeptical in the beginning, but after a while he thinks, well, why not? So he puts the parachute on, and as he fastens the parachute on him, after a period of time, he decides to experiment and put that parachute on. When he does, he notices the weight upon his shoulders. And he notices that it is very difficult for him to sit upright in the seat with a parachute on his back. Also, he begins to look around and he notices that the other passengers are looking at him and they're noticing that he has a parachute on while he's in the airplane and they begin to laugh and they begin to murmur and they begin to talk about him. When they do, after a period of time, he reaches up, he takes that parachute off, he throws it in the floor and it will be a long time before you will get him to try that parachute on again. Why? 
Because your explanation and my explanation to that person was put this parachute on, it'll improve your flight. That's the problem with modern day evangelism. That it's going to improve your life. As we look at this, I want us to consider the second man. The second man is given a parachute. But he is told to put it on because at any moment, at any moment during the flight, he is going to have to jump 25,000 feet to the ground. He puts the parachute on, and the whole time that he's sitting there, he's thinking about that fall and what that fall could end up being to him if he does not wear that parachute. While he's got that parachute on because his main thought is the stop of that 25,000 foot fall. Because he's got that in mind. Because he's looking at that instead of it will improve your life. He's looking at that and he does, it does not bother him that that parachute is waiting on his shoulders. It does not bother him that he cannot sit upright. It does not bother him that others are looking at him and laughing at him. Why? Because all the time he has the parachute on, he's considering that 25,000 foot fall. That is the downfall of modern evangelism. The first man's motive for putting on the parachute was solely to improve his flight. The result of his experience was that he was humiliated by other passengers. He was disillusioned to somewhat embittered against those that gave him the parachute because he was not looking at the fall. As far as he's concerned, it will be a long time before anyone gets him to put a parachute on ever again, if he ever does, ever again in his life. The second man put the parachute on solely to escape the jump that was to come. And because of his knowledge of what would happen without it, he had a deep-rooted joy and peace in his heart, knowing that he would be safe even though there were others mocking him around him. Even though all of these other things were going on around him, That didn't concern him. He knew that that parachute would keep him safe in the fall. Now consider what the modern gospel says. It says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you love, joy, peace, fulfillment, and lasting happiness. In other words, Jesus will improve your flight. Jesus will improve your flight. So the sinner responds and in an experimental fashion, puts on the Savior to see if the claims are true, and he does not get it. He don't understand. He don't understand the reason. The promised temptation, the promised tribulation, the promised persecution that the uh, the other passengers mocking him caused him to take off that parachute. He was promised love, peace, joy, fulfillment, long-lasting happiness. And all he got were trials and tribulations. You see, we, we try to get around it somewhat sometimes by 
going ahead and telling people you're going to face different things, you're going to go through different things. This is not a fix-all, but if we're not careful, we still do not get them to see their need for the parachute. We don't get them to understand why they need that parachute. And what we end up doing, if we're not careful, what we end up doing is we end up classifying this group as backsliders. When in reality, they're not backsliders. They never saw their need. And if you never see your need, you will never have a repentant heart. And if you do not have a repentant heart, you do not get saved. You don't get saved without repentance. And if you don't see that need, then you end up not repenting. Instead of preaching Jesus improves the flight, we should be warning passengers they're going to have to jump from the plane. They're going to have to take a 25,000 foot jump and let them know what that jump's going to be like, and let them know that if they jump without the parachute, it's going to be splat, and it's going to be over with. The problem is, is we're not presenting God as God is. We're not letting people see God as God is. The book of Hebrews, chapter 9, and verse number 27 tells us it is appointed unto man once to die and after this the judgment there's a judgment that sinners will stand before God they will stand before the judgment bar of God and he will say flee from me depart from me you workers of iniquity for I never knew you if we were true and faithful witnesses we would be preaching there is wrath to come. And we would let people see that wrath is the wrath of God. Our problem is we we show people the goodness of God, but we never demonstrate the wrath of God. We tell people Jesus loves you, but we never tell them why. That verse of Scripture is in the Word of God. It doesn't matter how happy a sinner is, how much he is enjoying the pleasures of sin for a season, without the righteousness of Christ, he will perish one day in his sins and will be under the wrath of God. Peace, joy, and loving kindness and all the things that we know, they are fruits of salvation but they are not a legitimate picture to put before people for them to see their need for salvation now I want us to consider this I want us to think about this remember the second passenger that second passenger put on that he he put on the parachute for all the right reasons he put that parachute on and we're, we're in flight and there's a brand new stewardess and she's walking down the aisle and she's wanting to make an impression on all the passengers and she surely does because she's carrying a pot of boiling hot coffee and she trips over one of the feet and, 
as she trips over one of the feet of the passengers, she spills that boiling hot coffee on our second passenger. He feels the heat from it. He he winches from it. He does everything that's natural as a device from that persecution, that hot coffee, whatever it may be. He, He... responds in all the right ways, but the one thing that second passenger does not do is he does not reach up, take off the parachute, and blame the parachute on the tribulation. Why? Because he put that parachute on for the right reason. That parachute was not... In fact, to be honest with you, he knew that that parachute was there. He knew that it would be there to help him. He knew that he could take that 25,000 foot fall and he would be safe at the end of that fall because of that parachute. In fact, after the spill of the coffee, he was looking forward to the 25,000 foot drop. Consider, if you will, as we look at that second passenger, even in the middle of what he was going through, he experienced joy, peace, happiness. Why? Because That wasn't the reason he put the parachute on. With that thought in mind, let's take a little closer look. As we look at that second passenger, uh, does he go, man, that hurt? Well, of course he does. But does he get mad at the parachute? No, he does not. Now, if we put the Lord Jesus Christ on for the right reasons to flee the wrath to come, when tribulation strikes, when flight, when the flight begins to get bumpy, when we want to get angry at God, we won't lose the joy and peace that we have in our soul because the parachute was put on for the right reason. If anything, again, that parachute, that 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 tribulation is going to cause you to cling more tightly to your salvation. Does our tribulation that we face in our life not cause us? to cling more tightly to our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to consider, if you will, uh, superficial repentance. Our modern way of thinking is that we so want sinners to respond to the gospel that we unwittingly preach a man-centered message, the escape which was this. You'll never find true peace without Jesus Christ. You have a God-centered vacuum in your heart that only God can fill. We preach Christ crucified and we preach repentance. But the thing that we leave out is the wrath of God. The thing that we leave out is the law of God and the law bringing man to repentance. As we look at this, as we consider and remember Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul said, I had not known sin but by the law. How can a man repent if he does not know what sin is? How can he repent if he doesn't know what sin is? Understand this. You and I do not need... To let's just say we we came across someone that was a homosexual. 
Our dealing with that man does not need to deal with his perversion as as much as we need to deal with his standing before God. Does that perversion cause him to have a standing before God? Yes, it does. But that's not his main need. His main need is that he understand that one day he is going to fall to the wrath of a holy God. He's not going to be before God because he was a homosexual. He's going to be before God because he has broken God's law. He has broken God's law. He's he's coming because he's lied to men or he's stolen from men. But when you when you see things like David saw it, David's sin with Bathsheba, he broke all ten of the commandments. He coveted his neighbor's wife. He lived a lie. He stole his neighbor's wife. He committed adultery. He committed murder. He dishonored his parents and he disobeyed God. He broke them all. The difference is when you hear David pray, he says, against thee and against thee only have I sinned. Why? Because the law of God showed him who he was before God. Not who he was before men. Not that I have wronged Brother Charles or I have wronged Brother Ricky, but I have wronged God. I am guilty before God. Joseph, when Joseph was tempted with sexuality, he said this, How can I do this thing and sin against God? The prodigal son said, I have sinned against heaven. Paul preached repentance toward God. And the Bible says, Godly sorrow worketh repentance. When a man does not understand that his sin is primarily vertical, he will merely come and exercise superficial faith or experiential faith because it's horizontal, it's between men. But when he realizes it is vertical, it makes a difference. A.B. Earl made this statement, I have found by long experience that the true test that the severest threatenings of the law of God have a prominent place in leading men to Christ. They must see themselves lost before they will cry for mercy. They'll not escape danger until they see that danger. Imagine, if you will, if you and I were to see someone that we thought was drowning and we went out to get them, and before saying anything to them, we drag them to shore and say, I've saved your life from drowning. That person tells you they were playing in the water. They weren't really drowning. They didn't see that they were drowning. Sadly, what happens in the U.S. and in the Western world is as follows. We have preached the cure without convincing of the disease. We have preached the gospel of grace 
without first convincing men of the law and their transgression. The grace of God is real. The grace of God is is wonderful. But no one's going to see the need for the grace of God if they do not see themselves in the wrath of God. For him it was not a bad thing to trample the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ underfoot. Why? Because he never was convinced of the disease that he had. Those people that come in and we think they come in Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and Wednesday after Wednesday after Wednesday. And we even, we even talked about this Wednesday night. Those people that just come in and over and over and over and over and they hear the gospel, they hear this, they hear that preach, they hear it taught. They've not yet seen themselves lost. And sometimes it may be because we're not preaching enough of the wrath of God. We're not presenting God as He is. Biblical evangelism always, without exception, is this. It's one of two things. It is law to the proud and grace to the humble. It is law to the proud and grace to the humble. With the law, if you will... Never will you ever see Jesus giving the gospel, the good news of the cross and the grace of God to a proud, arrogant, self-righteous person. You don't see him doing that. You see him presenting the law to them. Presenting the commandments of God. You say, how do you know that? Consider, if you will, God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Everyone that is of proud heart, the scripture says, is an abomination to God. Jesus told us whom the gospel was for. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to what? To the poor, the brokenhearted, the captive, and the blind. These are spiritual statements. The poor in spirit. The brokenhearted are the contrite ones that you find in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15. Those uh, that uh, whom Satan has taken captive at his will, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 26. And the blind are those whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. Only the sick need a physician. Mark chapter 2 and verse 17. And only those who are convinced of their disease will appreciate and appropriate the cure. Very briefly, I want us to look at real quickly at the law to the proud. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 through 28, we see a certain lawyer that stood up and tempted the Lord Jesus Christ. He was not an attorney. He was a diligent studier of the law. He knew the law of God. He knew it front and back. He stood up to Jesus and he said, How can I have everlasting life? What did Jesus say? He gave him the law. Why? Because he was proud and he was arrogant. Because he knew the law. Here we have a professing expert in God's law tempting the Son of God. And the spirit of his question was, what do you think we've got to do to get everlasting life? Jesus gave him the law. 
He said, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? He says, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered him and said, this do and ye shall live. When the scripture said that, he made the statement. He wasn't, he wasn't willing. There was a group of people that he, was, he didn't like. He didn't like the Samaritans. And, and Jesus pointed that out to him. And he let him see that his lack of love for the Samaritans was part of the breaking of the law of God. And part of the reason that Christ did that is to bring him to himself. But when he did that, that man asked him, said, well, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? The effect of the essence of the law, the the spirituality of the law, of what the law demands and the truth that it demands, that man's mouth was stopped. It was stopped. Why? Because he saw the law of God. And he saw that he was breaking the law. I want us to consider another. I want us to consider the grace to the humble. Then we see where the grace to the humble was the case in Nicodemus' day. Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to the Lord Jesus Christ as a Pharisee, but he came humbly. And when he came humbly to the Lord Jesus Christ... What did Jesus Christ tell him? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should have everlasting life. You see what Christ is doing? Those that are arrogant, those that, are, those that, that don't care for the law, those, he's presenting the law to them. It is only those who have seen the law When Nicodemus came to the Lord Jesus Christ, Nicodemus said, Master, we know thou art true and doth teach the truth. We know you're from God. He was basically accepting and and making note of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came to him with that kind of a heart. And when he came to him with that kind of a heart, Jesus Christ displayed grace to him. You see what Jesus is doing? He, those who do not understand the law, those who do not get what Paul was saying when he was saying that sin might become exceeding sinful. It's the commandment. It's the law that brings us to that point that that sin becomes exceeding sinful. I want you to consider this also. God's law and God giving his law. And I know that everybody's tired and we've eaten, so I'll try to hurry through this. But understand that when God gave his law, he wrote it upon every heart. Therefore, no man can claim excuse before God. Every man, every man knows that he doesn't kill his brother. Every man knows that they don't murder. Every man knows, every man, in in fact, God gives us a conscience. Con, Con means together. Science is the study of God is together showing us in our conscience 
that you don't murder. You don't steal. It doesn't matter who a person is. does not matter who they are. When they steal, they know that's wrong. Because God has placed that on their heart. But you and I, as, as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ, needs to shine a spotlight on the laws of God that they have broken. And as we do that, the law can convince them of sin. God has given light to every man. John chapter 1 and verse number 9. The Holy Spirit convinces them of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. John chapter 16 and verse number 8. Sin which is transgression of the law. John chapter 3 and verse number 4. Righteousness which is of the law. Romans chapter 10 and verse number 5. And judgment which is by the law. Romans chapter 2 and verse number 12. All that we do, and I want us to get a hold of this, and I, I, I promise you I'm trying to wrap it up. All that we do in presenting what we present should be driving people to Christ. Whether it, it you and I, and, and, and this is what we need to understand, in dealing with someone, we are not dealing with them and, and looking down upon them because they're under the condemnation of God. We're shining forth the law of God so that they see that, so that they can experience the grace of God. Because once, what did we see that Christ did? He gives, he gives grace to the humble. So what you and I are doing when we're dealing with people, when we're talking to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, we're trying to get them to a point to where they humble themselves before God. We are not. We are not browbeating someone over the head with the law so that they see just how low they are. We're bringing them to Christ. We're, we're presenting God's law so that they see and understand there is, there is a law that demands satisfaction. People like John Wycliffe, uh, Martin Luther uh, made statements about the law. They, in fact, uh, John Wesley made this statement, 90% of the law, we, we, as we preach, we ought to preach 90% law and 10% grace so that people see their need for the Lord Jesus Christ. So that they understand their need to accept the Lord Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon said this. There will never, they will never accept grace until they tremble before a holy law. A person will never accept grace before they tremble before the law of God. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and if anyone knows the grip of grace, John Newton would know the grip of grace. He made this statement, the correct understanding of harmony between law and grace is to preserve oneself from being entangled by error on the right or on the left. He said we need to understand the law in order to understand the grace. We've heard this statement for years and years and years. We've heard 
hellfire and brimstone preaching. Hellfire preaching will produce a fear-filled convert. But using God's law will produce a tear-filled convert. I'm not saying don't preach hell. When God preaches hell, you preach hell. And you preach it the way God preached it. You ought to preach there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. But that is not the sole reason for getting saved. The sole reason for getting saved is because one day without salvation, a man, woman, boy, or girl will stand before the wrath of a holy God. And that wrath is what must be escaped. And that wrath can only be that, that wrath can only be avoided by one. And that is the one that bore that wrath. The Lord Jesus Christ. We have got to let people see that by the commandment, sin becomes exceeding sinful. Not that you've done this and you've done that. Breaking God's law demands, and and understand this, and I promise you I'm done. Understand this. A person will not take an antidote if they do not see the disease. A person will not want to escape the wrath of God if they haven't seen the wrath of God and one of the ways that you get them to see that wrath is by showing them the law of God God did not just give us the law of God to say don't do this and do this and don't do this and do this his purpose was and that's what Paul was trying to get us to see that sin by the commandment By that law, that sin is what becomes exceeding sinful. And that is the point where a man, woman, boy, or girl sees their need for the Savior. They won't see it any other way. No one will. So therefore, you and I need to continually... Not lifting ourselves up that we're better, we've done this, but we ought to continually put them before God. This is what God says. I mean, if you wanted, if you wanted to ask them, you could, you could ask them, "Have you ever lied?" Well, yeah, I've told a lie. What does that make you? Well, it makes me a sinner. No, what does it make you if you've told a lie? It makes you a liar. Have you ever stole anything? 99% of people will tell you we've stole something. Well, you've broken the law of God. And God says if you've broken any, you've broken all. And it's God's law that demands wrath. God is good. 
And most people would tell you that God is going to forgive them because God is good. It is the goodness of God that will not allow God to just forgive you and that be it. There had to be a payment paid 